This week's episode is brought to you by the Talkbuster podcast. Every episode, Chris Chipman and a guest reminisce of their time working for Blockbuster. Now, even if you've never worked for a Blockbuster, I guarantee you'll find the stories both hilarious and relatable. One of my personal favorite stories was when he had a guest retelling his time of working at a porn shop the day before Christmas when they were just packed to the gills. So listen to the Talkbuster podcast on all your favorite platforms today. And welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. You surviving the apocalypse, man? Yeah, yeah, I am. I was uh, playing some Dawn of War earlier. That's a good way to keep my, my mind off things. I My work, actually, just this... Uh, today or yesterday our ceo sent out a hey things are kind of scary so be ready to work from home if you need to unfortunately i work in the warehouse and even though my job is mostly coding i also am support for the tool i work on which means i kind of have to be on site for when things go wrong <laughs> you can commute just get a little shopping on your door yeah Anyway, my, my point is that uh, things are going okay. I'm feeling I'm feeling okay today. I'm feeling pretty good actually. I've got some friends over. They're in the other room right now. I told them, hey, I gotta go do this thing, and uh, I'll, I'll chat with you guys later. Try not to be too loud. So, <laughs> how are you? Uh, I got two weeks paid time off from my job, which that could was be good or bad depending on your personality, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna work on the podcast a lot. I'm gonna find things to do. I'm never. I, I keep myself busy, but it was more just weird. It's like, wait a second, you're giving me two weeks off. Yes, and they're paid. Yes. Why? Because everyone's getting sick, and we don't want any more people getting sick. What's the game? What's 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 the, what's the trick here? Come on. Because <laughs> I know I'm not used to any job ever going here. We're not going to bring you in, and we're going to pay you not to come in. Which, wow, darkest timeline indeed. <laughs> well, why don't you take us right into our patron sound off? Yeah, the patrons are the people that give us money so we can afford to keep doing this. And they are Pam Galley, Marky, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Reed D, Arthur Crane, and Kevin Vehe. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If you'd like to join that illustrious legion, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash geekswishu. For only 25 cents an episode, you get access to all sorts of great bonus content, and you bring us one step closer to the Michael Bay Smackdown. And Kevin, if you're listening to us, send us a phonetic pronunciation of your last name because I'm embarrassed that we can't get this down. All right. Well, we have a special guest with us tonight. Special guest, introduce yourself. Hey, guys. It's me, Chris Chipman. Longtime friend of the podcast, and we brought him here to talk about some cool, geeky stuff, as we are wont to do. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing very good. You know, it's funny. I've had Kevin on my show a whole bunch of times, and I've listened to um him on a bunch of other shows and i can't for the life of me remember if you're pronouncing it right or not either all right so it's not just us kevin help us help i us think help it's you. i think it's vi i mean that's how i think i was pronouncing it in our bucklers yeah i think that's what it is but um but and and by the way kevin is an incredibly cool guy and i i'm so glad that he uh, he's been on he's, the podcast Oh yeah, okay, good. I, I can't remember whose shows he's been on so far. He's <laughs> he's he's just a blast to talk to, and he's he's a really good dude. Yeah. So Ulrich, what are we talking about today? 
Well, today we are kicking off a new episode format we're going to call The Good, The Bad, The Franchise. The idea for this comes courtesy of our podcast producer, Slagathor, and, well, how to break this down. Basically, we're going to dig into a film franchise, discuss its highs, its lows, its goods, its bads, its lasting impact, and we decided that we should start with one that, in a lot of ways, continues to shape the blockbuster landscape, and that is The Lord of the Rings. And for edification, from my understanding, or correct me if I'm wrong, that when we're talking about franchise, we're not going to be talking about the grand total franchise of the the books, the other material like the Silmarillion, or the Hobbit. This is like mostly just what about the the Lord of the Rings film franchise? We could there maybe is another... not enough time in the world to discuss the impact of the Lord of the Rings as a literary influencer and the hobbit is its own thing that we will tackle eventually namely because i don't feel like rewatching all of that mess right now and I, I want to be happy i'm locked <laughs> indoors with my small child i'm gonna talk about lord of the rings because lord of the rings is awesome well my point was just to to set the precedent that for this thing because we'll probably do we're gonna do we plan to do more for the good the bad the franchise but it's gonna be very focused on like if we're talking about a game franchise we'll be talking about like a specific sect of the games if we're talking about a film franchise that also has to be a book franchise those are like two separate episodes all right we all on the same page (laughs) i think so so let's uh start off with the fellowship of the ring and what you guys remember about when that came out uh, yeah, the first question thing we have here listed is our experience with each film. And funny enough, I actually didn't see Fellowship when it first came out in theaters. I didn't watch it till quite a time later. So for shame, sir. I was like, I don't even know how old I was at the time, but um, you would have been eleven or twelve, because that's about how old I was. And I always forget if you were younger, how much younger than me you are. I think I'm about the same age as you, so it would that would have been that would have made sense. But I I don't know. I just didn't have any interest in it at the time. So fair enough. So what are your guys' experience with that movie? <laughs> I remember a kid came to class and explained terribly to me to the point that I had no interest in it. But then when we were visiting my brother at college, he's like, I've heard. I went and saw this Fellowship of the Ring movie. You guys need to go see it. It's amazing. And my whole family went out and saw it. And I was like, holy hell, what what was that? And I think that was the only movie series that my brother went out of the way to collect the super-duper director's editions that you had to track down that weren't cheap. Like, these are his favorite movies. All right, Chris, I have a I have a strong inclination that you probably saw this in theaters when it came out, right? What was that like for you? Oh, man. Yeah. Thank you for letting me go third, because it's reminding me that even though our age difference isn't all that great, hearing I saw this when I was 12 kind of breaks my brain just a little bit. Um, (laughs) But so this movie went into production when I was working at Blockbuster and it came out while I was working at Blockbuster. This film came out only two years after The Phantom Menace, right? We went from a franchise kind of, depending on how you looked at it, you know, people's reaction to The Phantom Menace is that it kind of, you know, dive-bombed itself. Um, Mm -hmm. There weren't a lot of fantasy films. This is going to be weird for people to think, but, like, there was a Dungeons & Dragons shitty Hollywood movie that came out around this time. Oh, yeah, I remember. People weren't dumping a lot of time into making good fantasy films. They still aren't, though. 
Right. Uh, you, it's you, weird. It's amazing. It's amazing that we didn't get, like, but, but again, also, this and Harry Potter came out very close to each we other. We get a lot but, more attempts now, though. Yeah. yeah. But, but we, we, we but, talked about it. There's a whole other episode where we talked about movies that, you know, changed genres for the better, uh, movies for the better, or for the worst. And uh, you were also on that one, Chris. Right. Um, but but, but you're, to, you're, so, again, I, I'm known, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I, I've heard that because I wasn't quite old enough to cognize this like I had read The Hobbit before you know when I was like eight or something like that but I, I I remember hearing years later that for much of the the later half of the 20th century Lord of the Rings was called the unfilmable series oh right. yes I mean Ralph Bakshi tried um a, a lot of people <laughs> tried Disney had the rights to it for a while and then when Ralph Bakshi ended up doing it that's why they made um Black Cauldron you know but this was this was something that, you know, I had read the books and I was exactly the right person for this thing to like really like drum up a lot of thing. But what people, especially, you know, someone a little younger might not realize is this. This was the thing of legend for movie fans, movie fans who were fantasy fans, because one, we hadn't had too many movies like this. And two, they were letting a person we all loved make it. Do you know what I mean? This wasn't the, oh, they're bringing in some big, already known, giant Hollywood director, and we didn't have the, oh, Disney was this huge thing that was buying everybody up, so whoever they get we're going to be mad at because they're just going to try to tank the thing we love. This was, they're giving it to one of us. So this, all you know, the let, me, let me show my... Let me show my ignorance for just a second here, because I know that when you say that, my mind instantly went to Sam Raimi and Spider-Man, because that's how. But that, that and again, that but, that happened at the same time. Yeah, well, no, right? the reason I bring that up is because, like, I I know what Sam Raimi's quote-unquote creds were, but I actually don't know much about Peter Jackson pre Lord of the Rings. So. Oh, so think New Zealand, Sam Raimi. That's a All great right, description. The exact same level of credibility before the Lord of the Rings came out. So. Before Lord of the Rings came out, Peter Jackson had made two films that weren't basically NC-17 rated. They were so violent. Um, he His first three, three films were Meet the Feebles, Dead Alive, and Bad Taste. Meet the Feebles was banned in the majority of the planet. It was basically um, a far dirtier and far more well-made version of um, the, the, the Dirty Muppet movie. Um, that just came out a couple of years ago. Um, it, so the, every, everyone thought that was ripping off Meet the Feebles. It actually took a different approach to it, and I kind of liked it. But so this is Peter Jackson. You know, him and Taika Waititi come from the same school of thought. You know, these these two gentlemen. And um, so for Peter Jackson to get The Lord of the Rings, the biggest Hollywoodish type movies he had made was a film called Heavenly Creatures that he ended up tanking himself because it exposed to real life people that had killed somebody and got away with it that was abusing them and then the news program went and f- uh, like went and like looked into the movie and found them and he felt bad so he didn't like back up his movie even though this was his like you're going to win an academy award for this damn thing Pete movie then he made the frighteners with Michael J. Fox. Oh, I love the Frighteners. I don't think yep. it's good, but I love it. <laughs> you know, exactly. So Frighteners, Frighteners was his. So the reason the Frighteners got made was because he signed on way back when he made that movie to be the guy that was going to make the Lord of the Rings. He said, I want to write it. I want to do this. And by the way, we're going to make it as three movies. 
And this wasn't like the cheap way they did the Hobbit for three movies because the studio just wanted to make more money. This was you pay for one film. So you drop like two or three hundred million dollars on one film. And if the first one comes out and people like it, that means you're guaranteed to make money back. And I'm going to have my guys do it. Now, what they didn't realize was his guys were these guys called Weta that were his buddies that did all of these low-budget special effects for all his New Zealand horror movies. Well, Weta was in bankruptcy, and he said, hey, guys, I'm going to get this Lord of the Rings thing, but we got to make a movie first. So he made the Frighteners, and Weta did all the effects. And that was Weta, like, they got an investment from New Line Cinema to go and make this movie the frighteners was basically just a tech demo to show off the fact they could do the lord of the rings that would be why if you remember from the lord of the rings when we get to the later films a lot of the ghosts like the kings that come back and everything look like the ghost effects from the frighteners because he was doing tech demos for what they were going to end up doing so he saved weta he said we're going to do it for half the price ilm would do it for and this is why ILM and Weta have become like these like undetachable best friends because, you know, they basically either had to become buddies or one of them was going to take over. And the Lord of the Rings, you know, look at the difference between what Weta was doing on Lord of the Rings and what ILM did in the uh, Phantom Menace. Right. It's it's like night and day because they went back to model work. They, they were journeymen effects guys that like knew how to do it the old school way and cheaper and that's why the lord of the rings films ended up looking so damn good for the time um so this was i i do mean this when i say it this was mythical like we were getting entertainment weekly covers that came out that goes who is this peter jackson guy and those of us that knew where he was were like yeah one of us getting to make a big movie he's doing lord of the rings and my buddy steve who had never heard of him is like i don't know i'm afraid lord of the rings shouldn't be a horror movie you, you know, and we, we all had these conversations. And that same Entertainment Weekly episode had an article about Sam Raimi signing on to do Spider-Man. And people were wondering if <laughs> guy that had made basically horror movies could make a superhero film. You know, so it was funny, I instantly thought of Minds of Moria. It's like, man, you really yes. brought those horror chops to, to that whole sequence. Oh, yeah. And, and so when this came out. And the rumblings came, remember, this is the early days of internet film criticism and everything, too. So this was like a make or break kind of thing, right? So this was this this was really, if, if you want to put your finger on the pulse of when, for good or bad, the state of geek cinema that we're in right now, 2000, 2001 were the years. Because they were basically coming back and saying, hey, old guard George Lucas, we can do this stuff better and we're going to give it to different people. And people that may have not had a hand in it before. And, I mean, you look at Sam Raimi's work, especially on the second Spider-Man movie, the Dr. Octopus sequence is is Evil Dead. You know what I mean? When he first yeah. wakes up. And, you know, and so to see Peter Jackson, it, it's like it was like watching one of your friends get to release a Hollywood movie. When Wingnut Films, Peter Jackson's production company, popped up at the beginning at my screening. So I saw it at 11 p.m., on the night it came out, which this movie released on a Wednesday. I came back from, I wasn't in college yet, but I came back from whatever I was doing to see it with my brother at 11 p.m. A guy in the front row who was dressed like an orc stood up and there's a film called Bad Taste where Peter Jackson is the star and plays, a, or so he's the, yeah, yeah, he's the star, he plays a guy named Derek 
they look up at the screen, he points to the Wingnut film scene and goes, how you doing now, Derek? And the whole audience goes ape shit. And I'm like, this is, these memories are just embedded in my head. And also an hour into that screening, the fire alarm went off and half the crowd left and we stuck it out and finished the damn movie. And then they give us a pass <laughs> to see it. So we went back the next day and saw it again. Um, yeah, and see, that's the kind of story I really wanted to hear because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be full up front with you guys. The first Lord of the Rings movie I saw was Return of the King. That was the oh, one I saw wow. in theaters. Hot like, damn. Yeah, oh. I, I didn't know what I was signing up for. My friend Joe was just like, hey, you want to go to the movies? I was like, sure. And then he stuck us in the very front row, so all I remember from that is my neck hurting the entire time. So yeah. it wasn't – I didn't like sit down to actually watch the three movies until I was in college. So I remember um, the film starts. We have that really incredible introduction of the battle the with Sauron and, and the flames it, and the holy right. shit, what am I seeing? But it starts with the quiet Galadriel telling you the story. When she, when Galadriel is speaking and there's three other voices speaking in Elvish and other languages at the same time, all it took was that. And I turned to my brother and I was like, he fucking did it. Like, <laughs> you didn't need to see anything else. It's like that movie brought you in with that tone and stuck the landing the rest of the time. And the cool deal was, as people who were fans of the book, The Fellowship of the Ring is a boring slog of a book. <laughs> so yep. to, to get through that movie and go, holy shit, he actually made The Fellowship of the Ring interesting to watch. Because it's all world building. It, you know, correct, book, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like... And I, as someone who's – there's a very fine line, I feel like, between having your movie scene feel legitimately epic and feel like you're trying too hard to be epic, you know? Yes. And I, and I feel like Lord of the Rings nails it so well that seeing, like, other movies that are trying to be, like, this, like, big, larger-than-life thing and 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 not making it. it it's one of those ephemeral things that's hard to put your finger on but i just wanted to give props to like the fact that like you guys said from the first scene of fellowship it feels as big as it's supposed to feel you know right exactly and it it does this cool thing um where i i love what he did from a narrative standpoint in all three movies where the books do a ton of oh this happened at some point and they tell you about it later like the book is basically you never really you never really witness things as they're happening in the book. You get people come together later and go, well, this happened and there's a noise in the in the West. And, the, and instead, this movie shows you it in real time. And I, I love that because it, it ends up making the events of fellowship a lot more um, immediate rather than. Gandalf coming back in the middle of the two towers and downloading the whole friggin' story to everybody. <laughs> they they kind of show everything <laughs> to you in um in real time. And man, it just I I don't remember since then. Probably the Avengers was the first time since then. The Avengers and I think when they when the Harry Potter movies finally took the turn in like the fifth or sixth movie where I went, whoa, all right. The, the, these movies decided to mature with the audience, and I am 100% on board now. Third Watching, movie, trust me. Anyway, sorry, go no, on. No, th third movie's my favorite of the franchise, but then the fourth one got goofy again, I felt. but oh, um, Okay, that's correct. <laughs> the, it's a different thing. Seeing this film in the theater and my experience with it was, it just, I had never seen and still don't think I've ever really seen a movie that was quite like 
Um, and I, I'm going to call all three of them that was quite like the Lord of the Rings because they were made at the same time. But as as we're going to find out as we talk here, each movie has its own sense of charm and interesting things going on in it as well. But um, God damn, I, I don't think we'll have another achievement. Like the Marvel movies are a big achievement just for continuity's sake of making so many goddamn movies. But none of them are this. No, this franchise stands on its own because those of you listening may go this sounds just like the build-up to avengers and that that's true it's a lot of comparison but and this is what i remember is i had a rough idea of how this you know played out because my older brother uh river who was a huge who is a huge sports nut but also loves fantasy loved lord of the rings so we had all the old Ralph Bakshi, Bakshi uh, Lord of the Rings movies on VHS. And that was my idea of what I was going into. And to see this and go, one, this is not that. This is awesome. And two, I figured, you know, I didn't know this was a trilogy. I just assumed we were going to go and watch the whole movie because that's how they did things back then. You did not have big, sprawling trilogy. And to get to the end of the movie and go, wait, that's it? Well, where I need more. And then if I wait, there's going to be more. And the fact that they filmed it all together and that they transformed the continent. And seriously, you guys, you got to go watch at least some of the special, the making of features, because the passion and the creativity and the devotion that went into making this movie is something we don't see anymore. No, and I recommend anyone that's even uh, on the on the fence fan of these that hasn't seen the making of because there was a I think it still exists but there was a site called Lord of the Rings.net that followed production diaries in real time like while he was making the movie and then they put all those together and he was so passionate that Jackson actually does those for all of his films now um and the the one for King Kong is also fascinating that movie almost broke him he went I don't know if you've seen pictures of him from the Hobbit but he's a pretty big dude and yeah. by by the end of making King Kong, he looked like the way Kevin Smith looks now. It was, wow. it was scary. King Kong killed him. Um, as a quick side, as quick side note. Oh no, never mind. Go on. Sorry, I was thinking something else. No, I was just gonna say, I've never seen a guy even even the production diaries for the Hobbit films, which we're not gonna talk about here. The man puts his whole self into the stuff he does, um, and. It, you know, like some people, it doesn't always work out great. Like, you know, Jackson doesn't have the track record of like Steven Spielberg, you know, for instance, his his movies he's been involved in post Lord of the Rings have been hit or miss. But the guy, the guy just seems to want to make great cinema. He's he's a nowadays Cecil B. DeMille is, is yeah. what he really is. He just wants to make great cinema. Peter Jackson, director Smackdown, put it on the board. <laughs> oh, God. Good. I have either of you guys have either of you guys seen Meet the Feebles? I've seen I have not. I just googled oh. it and uh, that was. Oh, I thing. can't wait! I can't wait. Um, so Heavenly Creatures, I would recommend. Um, that's a hard viewing, so don't watch Heavenly Creatures when like you're in a bad mood because that movie is. Whew. <laughs> All right, we got other things before that. I was just like add it to the list. Anyway, so on our bullet points here because we keep like a list of some. Sorry. And I'm I'm looking at him, too. So good. We have a thing called our thoughts on each film. And I want to get out in front of this immediately for me. Because Lord of the Rings is... I respect the hell out of Lord of the Rings. In fact, there's 
very like the only movie in existence I might respect more purely would be like the original Star Wars for oh, yes. other reasons. But I've never actually been really into the Lord of the Rings as a as a much of anything. And I'm not, not exactly sure why, because I love fantasy. I'm a huge D&D guy in general. The only one of the movies that I really like is The Two Towers. And that's probably because the entire Helm's Deep sequence is probably my favorite battle put to film I've ever seen. So, but I'm one of those people that, like, I'm a... If someone else wants to watch Lord of the Rings, that's what they really want to do. I'm like, yeah, sure, you can watch it, but I like I don't own a copy of it. It's not. I don't even know how it. So, and I acknowledge that this is like me. This is nothing on the movies themselves. So that's why I just wanted to kind of get ahead of this. That my own feelings on the franchise are lighter than I think they should be, and I don't necessarily know why. But mm. does that make right. sense? Yeah, so, in a way. I know. I had I, I had to bite my tongue because I didn't want to jump in because there's there, no that's oh. that's fine that's why I'm 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 acknowledging that this is like I can logically look at this and be like I feel like I should like these movies more than I do because they are amazing from like a objective point of view it's just something is lost on me so that's why no, I'm it, like it's really interesting um that you say that because working in a video store and renting these movies and and again this is not saying that I'm dumbing you down or dumbing down anybody else because that that is not the approach i'm taking here the yeah well you just don't get it kind of thing but yeah. everybody's favorite one was the two towers um because yeah. you got pe- pe- people would go well i don't understand what the big deal is it's just you're hanging out with these hobbits and i don't because the two towers is really where it culminates into there is an immediate danger here because it's the middle story, we're used to having that be the middle act of our film. So that's when everybody who's not really on board with the story gets on board with what's going on. And man, the two towers is just, it is just, it never stops. That yeah. movie That movie is just, it is an exercise in brilliant editing. It is an exercise in brilliant pacing of action. Um, I, I can't say that it's my favorite of the three. Um, because I, I have, the, it, it's going to be weird. A lot of people hate on Return of the King for it being over long, but I have the extended version and I'll watch that any time. And I think the movie could have six more endings and I don't care. Um, because I have never seen fantasy hit its emotional arc cinematically the way that that movie did. That movie earned its journey and the emotion between the characters at the end of that film is just it, it this should be silly we're looking at, at full-size actors shrunk down a little size on the edge of a mountain like basically de- accepting death right is, is is the ending and and for some reason it all fucking works and it it's it, it just amazing to me but um yeah so sorry i just uh Oh, no, sorry. I think, no, I think you're worked. very I think you're very correct about that. That's why I that's why I wanted to say it that way, because I feel like Two Towers is is visceral. And I like Return of the King more than Fellowship, so I'm more on the side of like I don't I don't agree with the shitting on Return of the King thing. But again, I like all three of them. I just I feel like out of my I don't even know what the right word is. Like I I I almost am envious of the level of like uh love I can hear in your voice when you're talking about this. And to me it's like they're just three really good really important movies and it's not much beyond that maybe it's because i i was like i read the fellowship i didn't read the two towers of the king's fellowship was a really hard read so yeah. and yeah it really is 
It really is. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I don't have a reason for this. Just this is something wrong with me. I love fantasy, and to me, I guess it's because I, I see fantasy, modern-day fantasy, as the house that Lord of the Rings built. So it's every the continent that Lord of the Rings shaped. Yeah, exactly. So everything that I am into is in some way derivative of Lord of the Rings. So Lord of the Rings feels very, as a series, feels very proto to me in that kind of like, man, everything came from this. And that's really like cool. But it also means that everything I've seen is some sort of reaction to build upon uh, criticism of you know of it so seeing it is, is like almost feels more like like an archaeologist uncovering some ancient thing does, does, does that make any sense what I'm trying to say yes that's why well, that's, I started we're not going to talk about the effects Lord of the Rings has had on literature because there's just not enough time right now now another thing that's really important to note um, there's a comment Axel just made there it's like you're uncovering something like archaeological and someone had said to me a few years back you know Chris the hardest thing about the Lord of the Rings is that the effects don't hold up and I no 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 and and I I I didn't want to get mad but I I took offense in my head to that because I'm like whoa 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 when this came out obviously you know this is one of the first films that really created my my love of film from a I want to know everything about what happened in the background. It doesn't mean that I need that to love the film, but there's certain movies where you know like you loved the production and you love the people involved and that just doesn't end up on screen. And in these movies I feel like everything they wore on their sleeve showed on screen. There was not a single thing that was created or crafted or intended for this film that the intention didn't come through the celluloid for me and that's a really important thing to note because again yeah are the effects dated yes they are but do they still look real and by real i mean real in the context of the film things here feel visceral they hit hard an arrow sticking into somebody feels like it actually got shot and went in the model work being the main focal point of your eyes for less than great digital effects of the time really sell this movie. And also you put this alongside with a film like Warcraft, which I actually quite enjoy that dumb goofiness of that ridiculous film. It's not a great Same. film, but yeah, I, I, like I, I love that Warcraft went so hard fantasy with its magic and everything. But I love that Lord of the Rings held back. And like when people are casting magic spells and the wizards are, like, fighting each other. They're kind of just manipulating nature. There's not a whole lot of whiz-bangs and blips and lightnings and stuff on the screen. And I feel like because of that, this film feels... It feels like a fantasy that could could have existed in our past or could be existing still currently without it feeling so detached, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's just always been... Uh, it feels more like Braveheart. You know what I mean in a way than it does yeah. um, than it does Harry Potter. You, you know, or or um, or Dragon it, or Dragon Slayer. It's it's you know it has a it has that like grimy reality to it without being like edgelordy and dark. That was really surprising they were able to pull off. 
Yeah. So I'm going to take this opportunity to you know, talk about the two towers and the return of the king. Yes. Namely, yes. the two towers. Because I didn't get to see either the two towers or the return of the king in theaters because they never came to the small theater that was an hour away from me. The big theater, which had it, was two hours away. And it just, it, they came out, I think, what? These came out in December, January? Yes. They were winter. Yeah. All, and we were not all making. Three, all three came in January, but they were originally, I'm oh, sorry, December. But they were originally supposed to come out six months apart because they wanted a quicker return on investment. Yeah, but uh, we were not going to make the icy trek for two hours so that Ulrich could see crazy fantasy movies. It would come, it would come out on DVD, and we could get it then. And that's how I saw the two towers. Is uh, I'm like, we're at Costco, and Costco sold the big super deluxe director's cut editions. Yes. And I saw the two towers. And I picked it up and we got it. And we I didn't realize that that was anything special. I just thought, oh, wow, they put it in this big, chunky, you know, DVD case. That makes sense. It's a really long movie. So the first time I watched The Two, two Towers was the director's cut. Didn't oh, realize extended. it for years. Oh. Until I'm talking about, I'm watching it with a buddy. Like, wait a second. This feels different. Did they cut this? Like, what do you mean? Like, well, where's this scene? This scene? This scene? And this character? Like. That's not in the movie. Like, yeah, it is, dude. I've got it at home. I have watched this movie dozens of times. It's in there. No, it's not. You watch something different. And I found it. Oh, this is the extended edition. That's why it had 12 discs full of extra content that were amazing. Uh, Needless to say, I love The Two Towers. The Battle of Helm's Deep is insane. And this franchise has forever changed how I view cinema battles. Because this one... These, this franchise, the battles are clear. You can tell what's going on, and it, it's visceral. That is the best way to describe it. As Chris said, when someone gets hit with an arrow, you feel it. Why? Stuntmen, real weapons, miniatures, physical things, and a love for what's going on. I mean, this movie at times feels like this is just a kid having fun smashing his figures together because that's kind of what it is at points. And they well, never forget to have fun. I also, I also will say, as much as I love the Helmsteep battle – I have only just recently thought that the the whole battle in Return of the King, which is really more than a battle, it's just one battle, but it's split up. Anyway, it really makes me think of like an RTS, or particularly a Warhammer type thing, because we've got yes. oh different kind of units, big crazy elephant things, ghosts at one point. And it's they just, did make it's an cool. RTS for this for Lord of the Rings, and it was incredible, and everyone is clamoring for a re-release or a remaster or something. But it's tied in legal rights between EA and uh, Warner Brothers, which makes me sad because it was an incredible RTS. And you got to play out all the big battles with the different units. And those of you who have played it, you know what I'm talking about. I just oh, want to yes. illustrate that the, the Helm's Deep battle and the Gundor battle are so interesting because they're almost two completely opposite approaches to doing a large-scale battle. Helm's Deep feels grimy and gritty and you know, real, and even though it's orcs, this really could be any historical army, kind of like the whole Braveheart thing. But Return of the King's Gundor battle goes way more into the, you know, crazy fantasy with big, you know, creatures and some magic. There's, like, basically drakes flying around, and it is has that more, like, elevated kind of, like, I really am in another world kind of feeling. And they're both really good. They're just, like, it amazes me that the same franchise can have two such different battle scenes and you would think like you know it's one of those things where I, when i think about oh it's just battles and movies battles and movies but then even compare that to the the big battle scene in 
in fellowship when it's basically just scouts in the woods and that has a completely different feeling where it feels less like a battle and more like uh i don't know it's an ambush really yeah and And, each of the battles is different because the siege of minas tirith and the battle of pelinar field is not in any way akin to uh helm's deep because i think helm's deep as you said it's darker it's great it's in the rain there's lots of blues and that one it's a siege in the sense of if they can just hold out then they might make it. And they they have the defenses. They can hold out. And Minas Tirith, that feels like, no, they're going to lose. There's no way they're going to win this because it keeps escalating. Every time, like, ha-ha, we've won. And, oh, God, why is there a giant battering ram in the shape of a wolf? Okay, we beat that. And, oh, God, why are there giant elephants? What's happening? Yeah, it's insane. It just escalates and I, I, escalates and escalates and gets bigger and grander and more insane. Well, that's an easy microcosm of one of the things I really respect about Lord of the Rings as a series is that it is so – it's weird because normally I feel like the word broad is used in a negative connotation in movies, and I don't think it is inherently negative or positive. But in this case, I'm using it in a positive way in which it's like you've got a series that is supposedly the proto-fantasy series – and when you turn in these movies, one of the weird strengths of it is how varied it is and how there are basically a bunch of other disjointed movies all in this movies and they're and it works. Like the story going on with Aragorn throughout the entire sequence is basically a completely different movie series than what's going on with Frodo and Sam. And that's also yep. like completely different than what's going on with Gandalf. And it all works. And they're like almost different genres of movie even and it still works. Yeah. Which again, huge credit to this to, to Sam Jackson and the movie. It manages to tie all of these disparate plot threads together in a coherent narrative that you're not bored watching any part. You're not sitting there watching Sam and uh Frodo going, oh, man, I wonder what Gandalf's up to. You know, watching, you know, Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn going, man, I wonder what Sam and Frodo's like. No, 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 you were in that scene until it cuts to the next one. And you're like, oh, wait, I wanted to know. But, oh, hello, what's this? And off we go. And you're into the next thing. It transitions so smoothly, so perfectly. And it's, it's 100% true. And it's funny that you mentioned the first version of the two towers you saw was the extended version. Because... This brings up a point that's really interesting to me with films and director's cuts and special editions is that I love the fact that a director or someone can get back and play around with with their film. What I don't like is when a director comes in and tries to pretend that a version that got released before never happened. Ah, um, debate. Yes, but I love the fact that I accept because I saw all three of these films in theaters – the theatrical releases of the three Lord of the Rings films are absolutely friggin' excellent films in their own yes. right. There's no like, oh, I wish there was more when I saw those. The extended versions are just it's it's fan service in the best way. It's saying, hey, guess what? Thank you so much for making my movie such a big deal. By the way. I had some more crap that I could have put in there, and I'm going to add that for you. And what I thought was great is not only do they very clearly tell you that they're two different movies, but they brought Howard Shore in to rescore them. Not like, 
oh, we're going to cut your score a little bit differently in this scene because new scenes they added changed the tone of what was going on. So they literally changed the score of the film. He rescored the entire friggin' movie um, based on the themes he had already done. They brought in actors to do reshoots, to do ADR re-recordings. This was not like, oh, I'm just going to tweak it in the computer because I didn't like the direction that my actor's eyes were looking in. This is no... I'm literally reshaping what I released because I'm getting a chance to add this extra stuff. And that's insane to me. The other thing that's mm. crazy is the combined total cost of these three films is less than $300 million. And between the three of them, they made almost $3 billion. Yeah, I believe it. Talk about return on investment, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> and it's crazy I... It's crazy because those numbers, right, those numbers weren't really matched again until the second wave of Marvel films. The original Iron Man did not make a billion dollars. Iron Man 3 did. Do you know what I mean? It like, took a while to get the train. It took movie. a while for movies to get back to this. Like, And that's the thing. Like, it took No, real the, quick, before, because I feel like you're going off on a, uh, another, and I want to continue that direction. I just want to say, as a quick side note, the whole Director's Cut Extended Edition thing, I, I learned that lesson, oddly enough, with Watchmen. Because I love the yes. director's cut of the ultimate cut of that, and, the, and I had a, my college friends never seen it, and I showed them for the first time the director's cut version. And afterwards, I was like, you know, as much as I love this, if I ever do this again, I'm going to show people the theatrical cut first. <laughs> so. Yeah, and again, another one where I've seen all three versions of that, and I love them all. Anyway, See, sorry to distract. I just wanted to get that in there while it was kind of on topic. <laughs> no, that's good. And and again, I didn't really have much further to go, just just to say, you know. People are, you know, angry when a movie, you know, makes just a billion dollars nowadays, but they're spending 250, 300 million dollars to make a billion bucks. These guys made three billion on a 300 million dollar investment. That's insane. Yeah. No, these movies, again, we are probably are probably never going to see this level of filmmaking again. I wish we would. Can we, uh, can we take a moment? Because we've been talking a lot about the filmmaking and Peter Jackson. We even had a lot of uh, talk about the score just now, which I didn't know that. You taught me something, Chris. That's really cool. I mean, I, my respect level just went even higher. Let's take yeah. a moment to uh, discuss the actors because I want to bring oh. it up specifically because you've got a book series, right? And most of the time, a vast majority of the time, the thing that readers are going to latch onto more than anything is characters. Now, I think it's easy to argue that in Lord of the Rings case, there's a lot of people who latch onto the lore more than anything else. But I think, again, the point is that there's always the thing of, oh, who are they going to cast? How are they going to fit my feeling of this character and this and this and this? And while I didn't have that, I think that the – I just want to. I just want to take some time to be like how fucking perfect this casting seems to be, basically across the board, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. going through my head of the cast. I'm trying to think if anyone want to change. Fun fact I do want to bring up: uh, Elrond was originally going to be played by David Bowie. Hey, you know what? I'm it. for it. Yeah, I can see it. Like, just let that sink in for a second. Like, I love. Uh, yeah, it is. Hugo Weaving, Mister Underhill. What? <laughs> What would it have looked like with David Bowie? Because if you've seen The Prestige, you know the guy can act. And him playing the Elven King, I think he would have dipped in to uh, Labyrinth a bit. I feel like uh, the most important was, oddly enough, probably Samwise. Yep. Just because yeah. like he's the emotional linchpin, a lot of the time the, the audience focal point. Okay. 
why is his name suddenly blanking? It's Rudy. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Sean, Sean Astin. Sean Astin. Oh, Thank you, Sean Astin. And Sean Astin, such a... Oh, such a perfect. He's got to convey geniality and like softness, but at the same time, he's got to convey that hey, I'm a hobbit, but I'm a badass. Well, just compare how he's portrayed in the Bakshi version, where it's just like somebody dropped him. And yeah, exactly. And he's not an endearing character, which the thing the, for a lot of people that was the movie that this was coming into. Like they're going to compare it to that, and people loved that for some weird reason. I think it's because it's all they had. But I'm gonna come. Also, those are not good movies. Yeah, I also think bringing that, I mean, we could obviously say Sir Ian McKellen, but I mean, oh, Sir yeah. Ian McKellen was already such a veteran at that point that I feel like that was like, me. yeah, and Chris really like, they're going to be great already. And it's just the looking at like, I know in my case, I know Viggo Mortensen like had a career, but I wasn't aware of it before this. And like Aragorn is such a, he has to convey this both feeling like a person that you can just be with and hang out with and also feeling like royalty at the same time. I'm not, I don't know exactly how hard that is, but I mean, he pulls it off really well. So. I think the only character like, rolling through all the decks in my head, the only person, and I, could, I don't know, this could have just been hindsight, is Orlando Bloom. In all fairness, Legolas's role is largely to say badass things and do badass things. Well, they and, wrote a lot of extra stuff in for Legolas, and that does kind of taint I think I think Orlando I think Orlando Bloom doesn't quite have the range of the rest of the actors in this film. Yeah, he's but, the weak link, but, but we'll go on. Oh, but Orlando Bloom is his range is perfect for the character they cast him in here because complete opposite end of the spectrum. Orlando Bloom is a useless wet blanket in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. And I love yeah. Orlando Bloom. I, I actually think he seems like he'd be a really cool guy. But remember, Pirates of the Caribbean was supposed to be riding entirely on his character. It's not until that movie came out and everyone went, we like Captain Jack, that they were like, all right. you know that was, So it's, it's a weird thing going on. But he holds his own in a character that's supposed to be pretty one-note and unflinching. Like, he doesn't have the years lived that Hugo Weaving's character does to kind of have a little bit of, you know, a little bit of uh, nuance to him, right? He's just kind of like, I'm very, cut and, I'm very cut and dry. And they play him really well off of, even though the actor is a piece of crap in real life, um, yeah. the, the amazing Gimli, who the two of them are just, it's, it's gold when they're on screen together. It's just magic. You know what I mean? It, it could be really stupid and they're a little playful yet semi, okay, these guys are racist and hate each other, but, you know, thing that they have going on there, um, it, well, it works it culminates oddly and it, it became a meme and because it was so awesome, the whole, I never thought I'd die next to an elf. How about next to a friend? Yes, I, exactly. I so, fun leg loss story that I, I feel like I got to share. So, Viggo Mortensen because he's awesome, became great friends with the stunt crew, and maybe because they almost killed him on two separate occasions. Go ahead and look that up. He would, you know, go up to them and greet them by headbutting. That was his thing. And, huh. you know, he got an idea. You know, he like, he went from the guys like, hey, you know, we're having a great time, but Orlando, he feels left out. So why don't you go up to him and, you know, headbutt him? Just, you know, don't worry, he knows it's coming. Uh, it'll be a fun way to welcome him part of the thing. So the son, he goes, you sure? It's like, yeah. And he goes up and he's like, hey, Orlando, how's it going? Crack drops him. 
And he goes, oh, shit, I broke Legolas. Oh, shit, I broke Legolas. Oh, shit, I broke Legolas. And he gets up and he's like, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. I'm fine. And he has to go into makeup department. And or, uh, this is Vigo saying, I'm sorry. I'll think, think it. They had to figure out how they're going to get this pale white elf with a giant red mark on his forehead. They didn't know how. They're like, oh, fuck. What, what are we going to tell Peter? What, it was Vigo's idea. It would be Vigo's idea. And I love that story because, it, again, it works great in the characters of, of course, you know, Aragon is the man of the people, you know, hanging out and everybody. And of course, Legolas is the one that gets accidentally broken because he's an elf. <laughs> and, and of course, if we're, if we're talking actors, we can't leave out Andy Serkis because frickin' Gollum created an entire new conversation about what, like, what an actor can do and what, like, do we define, like, some of the conversation was not necessarily pleasant, but a lot of it was very interesting. So... Yeah, no, yeah. again, this is a imaginary computer character, and everyone thought, like, oh, God, it's going to be Jar Jar again. And what's cool about Gollum, even, is that in the Fellowship of the Ring, it's a puppet, right? That they, they did a little tweaking in the extended version to make it look a little bit more like he looked in the later ones, but it's just a puppet for the one shot you get of him in Fellowship. And they brought in this guy that just worked for Weta named Andy Serkis to do the voice, for like the quick my precious thing at the beginning that character is completely created almost on site while making the two towers right this is it, it's incredible how like a bottle of lightning this whole story is when you dig into it um the other thing you know being a tiny bit younger than me because you we said i'm 36 how old are you guys i'm going 28. to be a 30 in august 28 so yeah okay yeah so it's a little yeah but again it's not a crazy amount of time but in 2000 it was a lot of time i grew up with elijah wood you know and elijah wood um was a bit he was a bit of an all over the place case when he was a kid he was in a movie called north that roger ebert roger ebert panned (laughs) so terribly that i think most of the actors and the director who was rob reiner Rob Reiner, this is Spinal Tap, Rob Reiner, like, who was thinking about quitting directing after this goddamn film, right? Was, wasn't he Elijah, also the, the not evil child in The Good in Child? The Good Son, or The Good, good Son, son of Macaulay yeah. Culkin. But Elijah Wood, they tried to throw him in everything. He was like the next Fred Savage, you know, for a little while. Um, never quite caught on. It never quite He's caught on. So to, see, so to see him show up in Lord of the Rings, it was like, you know... At least Sean Astin had had some big roles, you know, when he was he was the kid from Goonies and he was in Rudy, you know, and he did these things. But, you know, to see Elijah Wood show up, it's like, oh, cool, Elijah Wood. I wonder if he's going to be good in this. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. No, this is inspired casting. He's not just good. Like, this, 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 this is something else. And him and Sean Astin have perfect chemistry. Um, another well, Frodo... Frodo is such a, I was just going to say, Frodo is such a deceptively complex character, I think, like, from a literary standpoint, because he has to be very vulnerable, like, constantly, but you also have to believe that as weak as he seems, he is strong enough to be carrying the task that he is carrying, and that, I know that's very, like, high concept, but I feel like that's a very difficult thing to convey, and Elijah Wood's performance always felt, from the first scenes of him you get the feeling like oh this is a a a kid i mean he's not actually a kid really but he's like the the kind of innocence and this is literally a story largely of like lost innocence in regards to him but as he has to deal with this concept face the world bear a burden that 
it was uh, that everyone recognizes was unfair for him to bear, but he's the only one who can bear it. It's like that's that is a lot of emotional heft to to throw onto a character, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. And and I think he nailed it. He he nails it in all three movies, and it's it's even a blast to see him come back for those couple scenes they used of him in The Hobbit too. But he just hasn't. He never loses the look of innocence. Like, these movies do, in the books, the story does a very good way of giving you a character of Gollum. That once you come to full realization what happened to him, you realize you're seeing that happening to Frodo. And then you meet these people and these wizards and these, like, disconnected from humanity folk who have been tempted by the same thing before and are at various levels of being controlled by it. You get Gandalf brilliantly played by ian mckellen who's still because he's a wizard and kind of more of like the rough and tumble kind of wizard that just kind of goes and has fun with the little folk and stuff like that he has to be tested there are times where he he says flat out i dare not touch this damn thing because i'm afraid of what would happen you have galadriel who basically shows that no not only has she been tempted she wants to be an all-powerful evil something but she knows it's not the best thing for the world so she's chosen the side of good despite herself and i think that's an amazingly complex thing that kate blanchett is able to play with that character of like you know it's both completely disconnected from the world and humanity and also fully empathetic and accepting of it all at the same time like you know it, it's incredible to see this world so damaged by all of this magic and everything and see these actors jump in and a person i feel kind of gets left by the wayside a bit when discussing these movies especially after they made the hobbit and martin freeman played the role so brilliantly even though those movies were so so was ian holm ian holm as bilbo is just perfect He's he's got some heavy lifting dialogue in this movie. You know, oh, the, I I feel oh, I will say like I will... butter spread over too much bread, and you're just yeah. like, oh my god, yeah. like the, this this guy is sequence, so sad. Yeah, but that sequence of him like conversing with himself about whether or not he should take the ring is oh. what probably my favorite scene in the first movie. Just of the yeah, why shouldn't I take it? This I is he like gonna... just, it came to me. Yeah, I was gonna mention the scene where he breaks down crying in Frodo's arms when you see is like. Oh shit! What has Frodo taken on? Yeah, this you right. know destroyed anyway, if, his uncle. Well, if uh, <laughs> if you don't mind, just because this series is called the the good, the bad in the franchise, we've been gushing on this movie for a lot, and I've already made my like trepidation. I don't want to be the one to lead this, but mm-hmm. what what are some of the, if not bad, you know, no movie's perfect, right? So like, what what do you guys think for that part of the discussion? Uh, the only bad part, and this is even then, you can put quotations around bad, and I'm going to say it because it has to be said, there are too many endings in Return of the King. And not that I don't think we need them all, it's that they are cut so that you they don't flow together. No, that is fair. That is You fair. could have all of those, but you need to recut it so that it all flows in actually no the reunited scene is weird and creepy and i don't know why they did it that way i agree I with never that, as liked well. that i feel it all cuts better in the extended version it's it does, still but we got it we're not talking extended version we're talking what we have 
Well, you also said the only version of the two towers you had seen was the extended version. Well, no, I've gone back and watched the original. Okay. I'm saying, okay, just like making the sure. Third versions are the extended because I have a hard time going back and watching it. Going, but there's just this better version. If I only want to give up 18 hours of my life, <laughs> it's just right over there. Just 18 hours. No, I guess I'll just settle for 12. But yeah, that's the only real weak part is. That weird reunited scene, I don't know what was going on there, and the editing of all the endings. Because all those endings are great. All those endings are needed. That is wrapping up these big, epic character arcs. But they shouldn't have ended it, like, fade to black. Because people are sitting here going, God damn, I gotta piss, Peter Jackson. Can I go now? Is it over? No? You need 20 more minutes? All right. God damn it. You know, kidney infection, here I come. Yeah, because because uh, from where I'm sitting, right, um, even with all that I said at the beginning of this conversation, I don't really feel like there's anything wrong with these movies other than small nitpicks. Nothing that is really worth mentioning. Like my my issues, quote unquote, with the movie were all me. I like from a just analytical standpoint, I don't see anything that really stands out to me. But I also think that's because I haven't combed over it as much as like you do have. So that's why I was more curious what you guys had to say about it. Yeah, so I I feel if if I had to put a film of the theatrical releases that was the weakest in the franchise, and I use weak in in the terms of you know I love all I I use weak in like the terms of if I had three children, you know what I mean? It's like I don't <laughs> you you know what I mean? Like it's these these films are I didn't grow up with Star Wars movies coming out, but I grew up with them being accepted like these, and, and they had an impact on me. This is my trilogy of films that, like, I saw in real time and just are a part of me. It's you just mildly remind me of Randall. Just, just saying. <laughs> no, I'm serious though. Hey, but I'm not, I'm not going to say anything racist. That's why I'm not reminding <laughs> you of Randall. No worries. That's what was funny that my brain instantly went to. There's only one return. It's not of the king. It's of the Jedi. Yes. But but the thing is, is as they were released in the theater, to me, theatrically, the weakest of the three is the two towers. And the only reason for that is when you take them as they were released theatrically, that's the most compressed one story-wise. There's a whole lot going on action-wise, and it's got the best set pieces of pretty much the whole franchise, but the theatrical version of that felt like they they gave some from the story to give some to the now we got to give people the spectacle because return of the king is an is a mishmash of the pacing of the first and second one the return of the king has incredible two towers style moments but also some sloggy draggy important stuff that in the theatrical version didn't quite edit as well as in the extended version but this is like saying, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I prefer this food that I love, but I ate it yesterday, so I want something different. You, you know, kind of a thing. I I can't find faults from a, hey, you know, there's going to be some franchises we're going to go into we are going to be able to say, you can skip this one. You, you can't do that here. They're, they are as close to perfect films but no film is perfect, but they're as close as a perfect cinematic experience as I've ever had in my life. And um, it, it's it's just, it's awesome that they're still that good. Yeah. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm playing the score in my head, which we didn't really touch on how incredible the score is. But goddamn, there are some real uh, rafter rattlers in this movie. You know what's another great thing about the score? Is the score is incredible, and it doesn't sound like any other score. Nope. And that's a weird thing, right? Because I, I, I've been on the School of Movies show a lot of times, and we, I, I think the people on this on this podcast would agree as well. There's far, there's not that many composers out there that are as good as John Williams. Nope. But you can always, you can always tell it's John Williams. There's very few times where he goes so far off the reservation that you're like, holy shit, like where did he come up with with that? This score, I mean, Howard Shore. This is Howard Shore, right? I think so. I just don't want to... All I know is whoever it was, I believe it's Howard Shore, was originally supposed to do the score for Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, and he got replaced by somebody so he could do these films. It Howard, is Howard Shore, Shore, by the way. Howard it Shore is. did, like, rom-coms and shit before he did this. You know? Like, this is this is insane, it, it's huge and it's epic, and there's been movies since that have had scores that have sounded like it. There's not too many movies that sound well. Th- there's not that many movies before Lord of the Rings that looked like Lord of the Rings. No, Lord of the Rings that, is its own distinct thing. But when we do that Peter Jackson director smackdown, you're going to start realizing that Peter Jackson has a very specific look. And oh man, to see like. I did this with my buddies in my backyard, but see like effects work and you go, that's something he reused in the Lord of the Rings. It's going to blow your mind. (laughs) It's just great. Axel, you got anything you want to add before we move into the next part? Well, I feel like at this point we should all give our little conclusions because uh, we've been, you know, mostly gushing. We did our little, like a little down things. And like I said, for me, if we're, if we're talking about like good, the bad, the franchise, uh, just because that's the title, of everything. The the Lord of the Rings, as I said, is I think it is objectively like top ten most important, probably top five most important like film franchises in existence. I respect the hell out of it. I wish I actually liked it more than I do, and I don't dislike it. It's just not the kind of thing that I seek out. So for for me, but I put that completely on me. I think that this is the, one of those things that would be uh, required viewing for anybody, and not just like not just geeks, right? It's like there are some movies that uh, I, I might say, you know, this is required if you're this or if you're that. But uh, but Lord of the Rings is a franchise. I feel like um, whether you end up being more like me or more like you guys, everyone should sit down to see the whole trilogy at some point. Like these movies are are important. That's my concluding thoughts. Nice. You guys have any concluding thoughts? I'll let Chris go because I'll wrap oh, this cool. up. So Chris I, I just wasn't sure. We, we, we were going in a particular order. I, I wasn't sure. No. So um, I, I have gushed about this because it, it's hard for me not to. And that's not even because I'm just a serial optimist. Um, I think with what we've got going on in the world right now, you choosing to open this idea of this show with something that is just such a positive and, and I also think this is a great show. I think this is a great idea. So I'm, I'm psyched. I'm psyched to be the guinea pig on the first one of this. It the the lasting impact of this franchise is that I think we talked about there hasn't been as much as you would have expected. I think the lasting impact of this is just that that this and Harry Potter came out and reinvented fantasy films, and Harry Potter seems to be the the type that they're still trying to ape on 
and miss people or less inclined. They kind of look at it as more of a, you know, we don't really want to try to do that again. It's like they don't try to make too many Citizen Canes. This is Everest of the movie world. Do, do, do you know what I mean? And it's yes. be, because the undertaking of this, it's going to be hard to replicate. The no, all just like no one I don't think is ever going to be able to replicate because they didn't really know they were doing this at the beginning. The I, Iron Man to Avengers Endgame thing with any other franchise because it's just so damn bottled lightning and ambitious to try to take on but when i mean remember peter jackson and his life partner and their friend um because in in new zealand i guess they don't get married so it's him fran walsh and philippa boyens they all speak elvish they all write elvish they speak the language. they are tolkien fanatics this is like when James Cameron got to make Titanic and he goes, Oh, you don't have that plate pattern. I have it in my museum in my basement. Let me get it for you. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the level of dedication they had here. So you're only going to get a movie when someone cares that much. And the lasting impact is that, you know, we we've only had movies for just over a hundred years and I see this being a movie that a hundred years from now we're still going to be able to watch and talk about, regardless of how much we actually like it versus respecting it. This is going to be, you know, film school in the 2090s, you know, is going to be going, hey, look at this. This is, you know, how fantasy film was done or, or whatever. And that's the lasting impact. And another thing is it fits great. It fits greatly into that whole perfect Thing that I like to think about with with being a geek and geek fantasy cinema is you could literally show these films to anyone that's at least a little bit mature enough to follow the story. There's not a ton of offensive stuff. There's violence and there's some scary bits, but these movies are the perfect like get get into this genre early kind of a thing. And I, I just I I think uh, I think the lasting appeal is that um, there'll never be anything like it. And I just hope everybody watches it. Don't I don't care if they all like it. I just hope everybody watches it. Yeah. Uh, no, I'll say if you want our more direct thoughts about The Lasting Impact, go listen to our episode we did with Chris titled uh, Great Movies That Ruin Cinema. Yes. Because we, we, we went in depth about the lasting, more definitive uh, definition of this film's impact but in well, a more one side of it anyway but yeah in on. a more esoteric sense when i call this movie the everest i mean it because you look at the hobbit and we will talk about the hobbit eventually and that is they tried to do what they did with lord of the rings and it didn't work love it hate it there's no getting around the fact they could not duplicate it because this was a monumental task that many people have tried and failed on because there is so much you have to have right. You have to have a passionate filmmaker. You have to have a studio willing to take the, you know, leap. You have to have a great idea. There is so much of this movie that could have gone wrong and in other films has gone wrong. So there really is that whole lasting impact. This is an incredible movie because thinking back, I didn't realize that so many brothers love this movie. Three out of my six brothers love this movie. I can make the four out of six. And we're all widely different in personalities, but we all love Lord of the Rings. When this used to run on TBS at nauseum, we'd be sitting there watching it. So, yeah, this is an incredible, amazing 
piece of filmmaking. And if you enjoyed this and you want to hear us go on for whoever knows how much long, consider picking up the extended edition of this podcast over on Patreon, where we will talk about things like the fact that Peter Jackson modeled Rohan after the Saxons and Gondor after late uh, medieval Europe to do better differentiate the two factions, both culturally and visually. I Wow. Well, anyway, that brings us to – so those are our concluding thoughts, and we could talk forever. But right about now is when we give the platform over to our prestigious guest so that you may plug whatever it is you want. Well, first off, I want to say that at the time of this recording, which I'm assuming you guys are releasing this soon, but I always just like to say, at the time of this recording, I think we've all gone through a pretty rough week. We're all at the beginning of the worldwide <laughs> – Basically, stay in your house because you're all gross and you're going to spread disease, coronavirus outbreak. So I want to say that now, to anyone listening, is as important a time as any for folks like me and the guys over at Geeks with Shields here or your favorite podcaster to reach out to them. There's going to be a lot of downtime. Let's record some stuff together and have a good time. I, I think that that's the best thing we could do to stay positive and um, above water on this kind of stuff. Um, with that in mind, I run four podcasts. They're under the banner of the Chip and Made This. Um, they are the Chipman Brothers Tangent, which is celebrating its three-year anniversary of the first episode on the 18th of March this month. The Chipman Brothers, sorry, I already said the Chipman Brothers Tangent. The Talkbuster Podcast, which um, is my blockbuster and video rental-themed podcast. Um, Creating Geeks, which I do with my wife, which is about sharing stuff from our childhood with our kids. And Shooting the Shit with Chippa, which is basically just like the tangent. I just supplement my brother for other interesting people on the internet that talk just as much as him. And um, you can also check recently, Bob and I did a panel at PAX East. That's up on my YouTube channel. That's Chris Chipman on YouTube. It's called Grumpy Old Gamers. We're approaching a thousand views. It's probably one of the most clicked on things I've ever done. I'm really, really, really excited about that. And um, I just always love recording with you guys and you guys giving me um, the opportunity to talk with like-minded people. And I want us all to succeed. Thanks. We love recording with you too, man. I appreciate that. All right. Well, we should do more stuff soon while we're all uh, shoved in anyway. We'll talk. We'll talk soon. Anyway, uh, so suggestions of the week. I'm going to take us right in because – so I mentioned earlier that I had some guests over and they were in the other room watching a movie. Well, that movie is called Red Line. came out in 2009, 2010, depending on what region you're in. And it's uh, an anime movie. You know, it came out from Japan. And I am always shocked when people haven't heard of it. I shouldn't be. It wasn't actually that big a deal. But it's one of the most gorgeous movies I've ever seen. It uh, took seven years to make with over 100,000 handmade drawings. <laughs> and it is... By Madhouse, so uh, if that means anything to you, uh, Madhouse on a film budget that uh, – actually, oddly enough, if that means anything to you, you've probably already seen it. So <laughs> anyway, the plot is very simple. It's in the, the future, pretty far future. Their uh, racing is still a thing. There's this race called the Red Line, which is the biggest race in the galaxy, and it's being done on a planet of uh, cyborg fascists who did not agree to let the race be done on their planet. So the racers have to complete the race while also dodging bullets. And there's actually a lot more going on there when it regards to personal character arcs with the main character, Sweet JP, who's this awesome kind of like 50s dude driving this really crazy futuristic Trans Am. And there's also some weird like political stuff going on with the fascist robot planet. But the big thing, the big selling point here is just how 
absolutely gorgeous it is. Like, I it just go look up a GIF to it, and if if that looks at all like kind of pretty to you, like see this movie. I don't even know where it's available. Just find it. <laughs> Red line. It's amazing. There. There's my suggestion of the week. Does that make me next? Sure. Go ahead. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on your show before, um, but you, you both know that I'm, I can't help but keep reliving my childhood. And, um, somebody made a movie all about ska music. Um, the, the late, early to late nineties, third wave of ska. Um, it's basically punk with trumpets is the way that people describe it, but I'm a huge <laughs> fan. I'm a huge fan, have always been a huge fan, and it's one of those, like, you're the geeks of the music genre, so we're going to make fun of you kind of thing for being into this. But someone made a movie all about it. His name's Taylor Morden. It's a great movie. It follows you all the way from Jamaica through to the third wave of Sky in the early 90s and interviews bands that are still around. I loved it. It was one of my favorite movies I saw last year, and I wanted to bring it up in it being relevant because I just watched it again because Taylor Morden, the director, just unveiled the final trailer for his film about the last blockbuster on the planet in Bend, Oregon, which is also a shared interest of mine. Mm-hmm. And um, that movie's being released on May 8th. So um, Pop Motion Pictures, Taylor Morden, Pick It Up, Scott, in the 90s. Um, I loved it. It's narrated by Tim Armstrong from Rancid. Um, it, it, it's just a freaking blast. And um, if uh, I can get my Patreon up to 100 people, I'm giving away a free copy of it. Woo! Rock on. I, I'm a big fan of my my boss tones myself. So. <laughs> you got to watch this movie, dude. You'll love this movie. All right. Ulrich, what you got for us? Uh, I'm going to promote something or talk about something. I don't know. Uh, Birds of Prey. Our Woo! patrons already heard us gush about it. But for those the three of us that did a review of it, we all liked yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, but for those of you who, you know, haven't donated to our Patreon, can't donate to our Patreon, don't listen to our movie reviews. You're missing out, guys. Uh, Birds of Prey is incredible. More people should have seen it. And, I mean, I get why it didn't fail. The marketing campaign was a bit scattershot. The title was a bit – was way too wordy. Hence why I'm calling it Birds of Prey, not Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. This is a kick-ass movie. I'm trying to think what I can say that I haven't already said, except that more people should have seen it. And don't be scared off by the R rating. It's mostly violence. And even then, what is violence? We see it every day. Come on. Ulrich, uh, your nickname is War. You're not qualified to make that kind of statement on violence. I am the most qualified to make that statement. Anyways, well, it's I'm, the movie. The movie is full of very empowering violence on people, mostly that deserve to have the violence that they're getting on them. So it's less of um. Th- there are some pretty shocking and horrifying bits of some pretty nasty things happening to good people in this, but they're few and far between and kind of happen off camera. Yeah. So no, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I'd say go see it in theaters, but no, do not. Well, maybe if you can, theaters are going to be really in a bad spot here. Well, moving forward, and if do uh, it the current... in a way that won't make you sick or other people sick. <laughs> no one's yeah, I'm just reading right now. I'm, I'm reading right here while we talk that a, a buddy of mine who works at the Alamo Draft House has to apply for unemployment. Oh boy, yeah. If you can support your movie theaters, no one's going. They're hurting, and they need. And I'm sure this is still in theaters because nothing else is going to get released because the world is ending. And if it does follow the trend of everything else, it's going to be on streaming here in a couple days because we're all trapped at home and they know we'll have to buy it. 
Yeah, do you hear do you hear do you hear Disney? They're putting Frozen Two and that third Star Wars movie on Disney Plus like this weekend. Yeah, we can talk about Disney, but that violates several podcast rules. <laughs> Anyways, right. thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe because that is literally how podcasts live or die. And with the ever-growing number of podcasts, those shares become all that much more important. And whatever platform you're currently listening to us on, thank you. I am kind of running out of new ways to say this, but I loathe the idea of being the guy who's just saying the copy-pasted thing. So I'm going to keep on trying. I'm going to keep trying for you. And the point of this is that we're on multiple platforms. We're currently on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And if there's a platform that would be easier for you, I mean, literally like four of these were on because I had friends from a D&D group that were like, hey, man, we'd listen to your thing if it was on this. So that's all you got to do is say, hey, I'd listen to you more often if you were on this platform. Tell us that. We could look into it then. And you're trapped inside. You got to listen to something. So as always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. We'd like to thank Chris for coming on and to be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.